Welcome to Practical Christian Living. So then stay put. Or for those of you that are drifting away, get back into the race. Get serious about Jesus again. You didn't become a Christian, so you could only be a Christian for a little while. You didn't give your life to Christ, so you could give your life to Him for two years or three years or five years. When we decide to follow Christ, it's a life decision. The Gospels tell us to count the cost when we surrender our lives to Jesus. If you once made a decision to accept Jesus as your Savior, but somewhere along the way you got off track, it's our prayer that you will come back to Him today, for today is the day of salvation. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson, with Hebrews 6, verses 7 through 20. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. It is a, uh, it is a sword to us, like a scalpel that cuts deeply into our hearts and, and begins to do work, to make changes. We also know that your word is a sword in our hands. As we go out to do the work that you've called us to do, and we battle against the enemy, that it is the sword of the Spirit. And we pray that we would know how to wield it well. We thank you for the Spirit that teaches us. And as we look at this chapter, touch our hearts, and where perhaps there are some here that are not sincere, or maybe some that are playing the hypocrite, or perhaps some that just don't know whether they want to give everything to you, we pray that they would be drawn deeply into a relationship with you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is Drop Anchor. It is unwise to go out on a boat without an anchor. In fact, there are certain places that you cannot float a boat on a lake without an anchor because it's dangerous. Sometimes lakes are huge. And storms almost always arise on a regular basis anyway. And if you don't have an anchor, you, if you lose power, you could be blown off to who knows where. Certainly, we need to have an anchor in our life. One of the early Christian symbols, when we think about Christian symbols today, we generally think about the cross. It is our greatest symbol. For the early church, do you know that they didn't use the cross the same way that we do? They preached the cross. They taught the cross. They talked about the gospel being the center of the cross because Jesus died at the cross. They went to the cross to find forgiveness, but they didn't use a cross the way that we do. We put it around our necks. We tattoo it on our bodies. We put it on our ears. We put it on our, tongue, on our tongues. And we use crosses as a way of decoration. And that it's something special to us because on that cross, Jesus died. But for the first century, second century, third century Christian, crucifixion was still taking place. They still walked down roads where people were being crucified. So the cross to them was an instrument of execution. It would be like you hanging an electric chair around your neck or having one tattooed on your back, diamonds on it and are, you know, blinged out. What a nice electric chair you've got there. <laughs> the symbols they used, there were a couple of them that were prominent. One you know of, it's the fish. Uh, it was interesting because I'm talking about the symbols of Christianity today to some degree. I, I noticed that several of you guys out in the parking lot, you have a fish on your car. And that was the early church's symbol. And when you speed, it's a flying fish. It's going down the road. Of course, you don't speed if you've got a fish on your car. We understand that. Um, but another symbol that they used was the anchor. 
Because an anchor is something that anchors you, that you don't drift. And in the early Christian catacombs, in the first century church, in fact, the anchor was used more often than the fish on those early graves. The picture that they flashed up or have up of that anchor is of an actual Christian tomb from the first century. This is in the same century in which Jesus lived. They found a cemetery of early Christians and on some 70 of those tombs, there were anchors. And I think that's a great symbol. I think the anchor is a good symbol for us because we need to be anchored. We need to not drift off. We need to be able in the storms of life to drop anchor and not be blown to who knows where, but instead stay put. Now, chapter six in the book of Hebrews is a difficult chapter. The first part of the chapter has the most dire warning in scripture. It tells us that it's possible for someone to cross a line where they were, it's impossible again to renew them to repentance, where they won't even want to come back again. It's a controversial passage. And there are all kinds of people that have opinions about it, and it causes some dispute within the church. Nevertheless, what can't be said about it is that it's not a warning. It's a warning, and it's there. And it says it's impossible to renew someone to repentance. They won't even want to come back. So it doesn't surprise us that the rest of chapter 6 goes to the anchor. That the rest of chapter 6 says, so then stay put. Or for those of you that are drifting away, get back into the race. Get serious about Jesus again. You didn't become a Christian, so you could only be a Christian for a little while. You didn't give your life to Christ, so you could give your life to him for two years or three years or five years. My wife used to say to me that I had little mini careers in my life. I was into cycling for a while. And from cycling, I went into mountain biking. Uh, from mountain biking, I went into hunting, started to hunt. From hunting, I went into to fishing, went out and fished for bass. I still really enjoyed to do that. And uh, now I'm kind of into golf, okay? So I've got these little, and my wife said, those are like little mini careers that you had as hobbies that you're not interested in anymore. Some people, Christianity is that to them. They look back and they go, oh yeah, I remember when I was all sold out to God. I remember when I gave everything to him. Well, you didn't become a Christian just to be sold out for a while. You gave everything to him. You committed your life. I'll live for you. I'll die for you. I'm here for the long haul. And this chapter is about getting back in the race if you're no longer away. Now for them, they were moving away from Jesus and back into religiosity. They were moving away from Jesus and they were getting back into the temple. The temple was pretty impressive. Remember that the book of Hebrews, and this is a profound statement. You ready for this? The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews, <laughs> to Jewish people, okay, who were used to the temple. The temple was impressive. It was built originally by Solomon. It was rebuilt by Ezra, and then Herod remodeled it. And when Herod remodeled the temple, it wasn't just a remodel. He rebuilt it. You can go there today, go in a place called Hezekiah's Tunnel in Jerusalem, and you can find stones that Herod brought in to build the west wall of the temple area. Some of these stones are 45 feet long, six to seven feet high, and four to five feet thick. These are one stone quarried out and then brought up to the temple. Now, I don't know that they build with stones that big today. There's a reason. And, and in their day, could you imagine it? And when the disciples came onto the temple mount, they said to Jesus one time, look at the stones of the temple. They actually made reference to these incredible stones that were used to build this temple. And Jesus said, tear this temple down and in three days, I'll build it up again. But then we're told he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body, which was the temple of God. 
In other words, they were telling Jesus, look how impressive these stones are that Herod brought up there. And Jesus is like, I'm the creator. I created everything. I'm not impressed with this temple. But the temple was several stories tall, made out of these big stones with a gold band around the top. And then inside was the most sacred place to Jewish people. And that is the holies of holies. And it was behind a curtain. And it was there that once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur to a Jewish person is like Christmas is to us. It was that one special day. And he would go behind the veil. And when we think of the veil, what do you think of when you think of a veil? I think of something really flimsy blowing in the wind. This veil was a curtain that Josephus, who was an early first century historian, Josephus tells us that the veil was 60 feet tall. So you got to picture a curtain 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. And get this, six inches thick. Josephus says that when they put the curtain in place in the temple, it took 100 men to do it. You ever wrestled with your house with curtains? Didn't take 100 men to put it into place. That's this curtain. There is, I don't know that there's ever been another veil or another curtain that is like that one. And it gives us a different picture, doesn't it? And it helps us to understand why they were drawn back to it. But the writer of Hebrews, which I believe to be Paul, is just, he's aghast at them that they would leave Jesus to go back to the temple, which is all a shadow of Jesus. Jesus is the real thing. The temple is all about Jesus. And so now they're returning to the shadow. We'll get that later on in Hebrews. He's going to use those exact terms. It would be like your wife has gone for a long time and then she comes back and you run and fall in her shadow and start kissing it. She would say, you moron, get up. I'm right here. They were leaving that which was real and they were going back to the shadow. And so Paul is saying to them, listen, don't continue down this road because there's a place that you can go that you can never return back again. You won't even be able to be brought back to repentance. But then he says to them in verse nine, but beloved, and notice that he gets at this point, the term beloved, it's a tender word. And this is not usually Paul. Again, I believe Paul wrote this. The, the writer of the Hebrews, if it wasn't Paul, doesn't use the word beloved very much either. John, the apostle John in first, second, third John, uses the word beloved a lot. But Paul didn't use it much. But now he turns to a, a pleading moment. He says, it's possible to go to this place where you can't even be brought back to repentance again. But beloved, he says, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, of things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He says, I'm confident you didn't cross that line. That line's there for whoever it is and whoever crosses it can't come back, but I'm confident of better things for you, things that are for salvation. Now he doesn't say this because he's just randomly saying it. He doesn't say this because he would say this of every Christian. He's saying it because there's fruit in their lives. He has seen the fruit of salvation. When you give your life to Jesus, the Bible says that you become a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. You become a different person. And if you're the same exact person now, that you were before you came to Christ, if you gave your life to Jesus, raised your hand, prayed a prayer, went forward, prayed with a friend, whatever, and you say, I'm a Christian now, but your life has lived the exact same way as it was before you came to Christ, you have problems. A friend of mine would say, you have trubs. And the trouble is, you're not sure if you're saved. It is the evidence of the fruit in your life that when you become a Christian, you're born again and you are radically changed so that behold, everything becomes new. So what is the thing that he sees in their life that gives him confidence that he's not talking about them, 
That's verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor. The work and labor didn't save them, but the work and labor that they did was proof that they had really been transformed. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Isn't it interesting that verse 11 talks about assurance of hope? This passage is the passage that people argue about assurance of salvation. And he says, you be diligent to get to the full assurance of the hope. How is it that you can be fully assured that you are saved? Get in the race. If you're outside of the race, if you walked with God before and you're no longer walking with him, there's controversy as to whether or not you're saved. But those who are in the race, those who are loving Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, there's no question as to whether or not you're saved. We know that you have made a commitment to Christ because of, of that commitment, because of that love that you have for him. Now, Christian life is a race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You are in it for the long haul. And sometimes when people get saved, and maybe this is you, people get saved and they get all uptight. I got to grow. I got to learn. I got to learn everything that I can. I got to do everything that I can for Jesus. And they get going. And the Lord would say to you, calm down. Take it one step at a time. Take time to grow. It's a marathon. If you went to a race and the marathon to run it, somebody brought out some starting blocks and nailed them into the concrete, the marathon, and then got down on the starting blocks like they do for a dash and, and sprinted, you might go, settle down. You have 26 miles to run. You idiot, you're going to pass out in 200 yards if you run like that. That's how a lot of people try to start the Christian race. We get saved and we go, I'm gone. And we're out of there. And all of a sudden we're trying to lead Bible studies and we're trying to do all of these things. And God's just saying, slow down, learn, grow, mature. We have plenty of time for that. We have plenty of time for you to do all the things that you need to do as you grow. When someone runs a marathon, the vast majority of people who run marathons don't run them to win. There's only a handful of people in every marathon that have a chance of winning. And most of them are Kenyans. <laughs> I don't know why that's the case. But it's true. Look it up. Most of the people that win marathons are Kenyans. They're winning them. Everybody else is in it. If you say to them, do you think you're going to win? They go, no, I hope I finish. Everybody else is running to finish it. And so when that marathon starts, there's some that start with a pretty good pace, especially those that run it in the six hours or whatever it is the winning hours are. It's an amazing pace that they set when they, when they take off. Yeah. But for most people, they get into their marathon run. You know what that run is? It is just kind of like a little, you know, it's so slow that people walking past them. <laughs> but they know I've got to run this thing for the full marathon and I want to finish. Listen, if you're on the side now and you don't have the full assurance of hope, get back in the race. It's a marathon. Get back in the race. But some of you guys are sluggish. I, you know, some of you guys are sluggish right now. But some of you guys are sluggish spiritually. Look at verse 12 that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promise. Some of you guys have become sluggish in the race. Some of you guys are falling back, but you need to imitate by those who by faith and patience inherit the promises of God. God has given us great promises, promises of eternity, promises of the future, promises in our lives, promises of how he'll use us. But we have a time 
from between the time the promise is given and between the time that we receive the promise. And Christianity is often not what we expected. The expectations of marriage often aren't what people think when they get married. A lot of times people's expectations in marriage are dashed in the first week. It's done. I've had people come back after a week of, of being married and say, do, does Calvary do anything like annul marriages? Can we kind of like just undo this thing like it never happened because it wasn't what they expected? Well, sometimes the Christian life is like that. We think it's going to be one way. We have a picture of what it's going to be like. But then there's the reality of what Christian life is really about. And it is work. And it is living for Him. And it is denying yourself. And it is sacrifice. And a lot of people don't count the cost. They don't consider these things when they become Christians. So they start to run the race and then they're no longer running it. They have a little faith. But faith is when you believe God enough to change the way you live. Faith is when you say, not just, I have faith, I believe God's there, but faith is when you say, I'm going to live like a Christian. And we want to be imitators of those who by faith and patience inherit the promises. Patience. The promise hasn't come to pass yet, but I know it's going to be here one day and I'm going to live like that. See, a lot of us struggle with patience. We say, I want patience and I want it now. I want it right now. You give me patience now. And God says, hang on there. You're just going to have to wait. It's going to take some time. And so he gives an example. It says in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, for he could not swear by anyone greater than himself, he swore by himself. Look ahead with me to verse 16. For men indeed swear by a greater and an oath for confirmation for them an end of a dispute. Now, those two verses are just saying this, that God, when he swore, he swore by himself because there was no one greater. And when men are in an argument, when they're in a dispute, they swear by something greater than themselves. Somebody says, I did that. And you go, no, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Swear to God. Okay, I swear to God. Now, I'm not saying that you should swear to God, okay? Jesus said, don't swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I'm just saying that's what we do, right? And remember, the scribes and Pharisees said, if you swear by the temple, you can break your oath. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, you can't break your oath. And Jesus said, what nonsense. Stop it all together. But when someone swears... When we were kids, we used to say, I swear to God, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. If I'm not telling the truth, then stab a needle in my eye. I'm telling you the truth, right? Now, when people swear, they swear by something greater. No one says, I swear by my chihuahua. Because we won't believe you. We don't know how you feel about your chihuahua. Your chihuahua probably goes and pees in another room when you're not looking. You wonder, why does my house stink? Because you have a small dog, okay? That's what small dogs do. They go around. They don't want to go outside. It's cold. They shiver. They shake. They want to stay inside. So they go around somewhere and they pee. Find the spot later on. What in the world's going on here? You're Chihuahua. And that's what's happening. So you swear by someone greater, right? Well, God couldn't swear by anyone greater because he's the greatest. Not Muhammad Ali, but God. And so he swore by himself telling us that we know this promise will come to pass. Now, then it says he swore by himself and then go back to verse 14, saying, surely blessings, I will bless you and multiplyings, I will multiply you. And I love verse 15. It's a little compact verse. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. It just seems like such a, a neat little verse. And Abraham's life must have been such a neat little life. After he had patiently endured, he received the promise. Well, Abraham didn't receive the promise God gave him for 25 years. And here's the promise he made him. 
In multiplying, I'm going to multiply your seed. And through your seed, I'm going to bless the world. Okay? And Sarah's going to have that child. He gave that promise to Abraham when he was 75 years old and Sarah was 65 years old. Sarah was barren, had no children. Abraham didn't have any kids. Abraham, his name was changed to Abraham. Before that, it was Abram. And Abram means father. So people would come up to Abraham. Abram, 75 years old. What's your name? My name's Abram. Oh, well, James' father, how many kids you got? None. You didn't have any kids. And then God says, I'm going to give you a kid by Sarah. And so they start waiting. And a decade goes by. And now he's 85 years old. And Sarah's 75 years old. And Sarah says, I'm getting older and you're even older than me. Why don't you go ahead and take my handmaiden, go in unto her, and we'll have a kid by her. And then we'll call that God's kid. We'll call that the kid of the promise. And Abraham says, okay. So he takes Hagar, he sleeps with her, and they have a, a boy named Ishmael. Some time passes, and Abraham figures he's helped God out. He's seen God happen. How often do we think we have to help God out in making the promises come to pass? So he'd help God out, and God shows up and says, listen, I'm going to have you have a child by Sarah. And Abraham goes, uh, wait a minute, God. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. The way that it's written there, oh, he gets that oh before. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Like it's a very religious moment for him. Oh, God, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says, no, but it is through Sarah that the promise will come. Now, Abraham could have gone, all right, God, I'm like, I'm marching on 90. You could do it any day now. But the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him righteousness. He all of a sudden at that age, late in his 80s, said, I believe you're going to do it and my wife is going to have a child. And you might think right then that the promise came. It was just the next couple of years, but it didn't. Another decade passed and he had no baby. He's getting older. She's getting older until she's 89 years old. Okay. Can you picture an 89-year-old woman in your mind? All right. That's Sarah. And he's 99 years old. Later on, about having a baby, she would say, am I being old and my husband being old? Am I going to have pleasure again? Now, she might have been talking about the pleasure of having a baby, but I don't think she was. She was saying, this old man ain't come around for a while, folks. Am I going to have pleasure again? I don't think this is going to happen. So when she's 89... The Lord shows up with two of his angels and they appear as men and they have a meal with Abraham at the door of his tent. And the Lord says to Abraham, at this time next year, I'm going to return and your wife Sarah is going to have a baby. And Sarah's in the tent. She's behind the tent door and she laughs to herself. Nobody can hear her. But the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah says from within the tent, I didn't laugh. She's listening to the conversation out there. <laughs> but why did she laugh? Because it's a funny thing. When she's 90, she gets pregnant. It happens. And she starts getting that little belly, not like the 90-year-old, but the belly. And then it's, she's walking around. Now, you ladies that are, are pregnant now, when you're maybe seven, eight months, getting up and down on chairs is difficult now, isn't it? And I'm sorry. You, we're laughing with you, not at you. You look funny when you're getting up out of the chair. <laughs> okay, I got it. I got it. Now, imagine a 90-year-old getting up out of the chair. <laughs> I'm pregnant. I got my baby here. 90. I'm 90. I got a baby. I'm having a baby. I'm 90. Now, the baby's born, and you know what they name him? Laughter. We're all laughing at Sarah. She, they laugh. 
But they didn't laugh because she was 90 and he was 100 when they had that baby. They laughed because the promise of God came about. And listen carefully, folks. We're gonna laugh with joy when the promises of God come about. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kgun 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.